Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. On behalf of Pastors David and Nicole Binion, thank you for joining us today at the Dwell Church Podcast. For more information about Dwell Church, visit us at dwell.church. Now, let's listen to today's message. Okay, it feels so good in here. and um... We've been, since the first of the year, we've been uh, on this rhythm of prayer. We felt God speak to us when we first uh, were about to come to this building. The Lord gave us on the first weekend of November is when we moved in uh, on my birthday. That's right. Mark your calendars. There's going to be a big surprise this year. <laughs> He's making plans now. Uh, but but you and I uh, preached together our last Sunday over at the hotel, and we preached on how to lead forward, right? Mm -hmm. And with that, we said uh, the way to do that is we will lead at, by being a people of prayer. Yeah. And so the burden of prayer just came on us. And so we have been talking about prayer for three months now. Yeah. Yeah. So we actually said the way forward will be led by a praying people, a prophetic people, and a presence people. And so, yeah. So today we're actually wrapping up our series called A Praying People. We're wrapping up our series, but we're not wrapping up our rhythm of prayer. <laughs> That's right. And we had one candle burning here in the center of the stage, but it fell apart. But the flame continues and we've uh, brought now we increase. Have four. Now we have four candles. These candles, I mean they look pretty, they're great decoration, but they represent the fire of God. Yeah. I know the fire of God is much bigger than this flame. His eyes are fiery eyes. Yeah. The Jesus that we see when he returns, there will be fire in his eyes. And so this represents our zeal, our, uh, our heart, our rhythm of prayer. We, we will continue to shoulder prayer in this house. Yes, we are a house of prayer. Dwell and we're still house talking about prayer. prayer today. Yes, yep. So we're just going to recap really quickly. We kicked it off in January, you and I, surveying prayer in Scripture. Um, and then you took us through the Lord's Prayer, a couple weeks of teach us to pray. to pray. And I love how you said, you know, of all the miracles that the disciples saw Jesus do, the, what, they, what they asked of him was not teach us how to do miracles, was teach us to pray. And um, They knew there was something about his life that was connected to his prayer. And yes. so that's what they wanted to know about. They yes. watched all of these things happen, but what they wanted to know, what they wanted him to teach them was how to pray. Yeah. Uh, Pastor Tanner taught on delighting in prayer and passionate prayer. Um, I brought a word on the prayer that gets answered. Um, and so all, during this series, we, and Pastor Tanner said this so well, we've made the journey from our head of just, you know, when we talk about something, because we have a desire for it, we, so we talk about it, but we make the, we've made the journey from our head to our heart um, by putting it into action and really establishing that rhythm of prayer. So I, I just want to say, if you want to, um, if you missed any, any of the, the teaching on prayer that we've done over these last few months, um, of course, you can go to YouTube, but you can go to our podcast 
Um, how many love podcasts? Like, I love podcasts. So Dwell Church has a podcast that is all of our, 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 it's our messages from Sunday. So you can go and, and recap and, and listen again or listen if you've missed something on prayer. Um, but today... Because sometimes I just like to go back and listen to myself. No, I'm joking. <laughs> <laughs> wow. I'm sorry. I'll, I'll behave. We'll get started and I'll behave. Uh, I am so... Uh, my heart burns, my heart burns for uh, where God is taking us. Just as close as this laptop is to my hand, what God has for us is within our reach. Uh, the, The men on the Emmaus Road, after they realized, after Jesus had this conversation with them and spoke during this whole walk. And then he, they convince him to come in for a meal and he sits down and he begins to break bread and they recognize him. And then he vanishes before them and they said, didn't our hearts burn while he spoke to us? I just want you to know that our hearts yeah. are burning. So we really felt to wrap up our series on prayer, we wanted to talk about today um, the baptism of the Holy Spirit and praying in tongues, receiving the gift of tongues. What is it? What does praying in tongues uh, do? And and um, so so that's how we're wrapping this up today. And... Um, and there's going to be an opportunity at the end of the service for those of you that, that maybe have not received that gift. It is for everyone. It's not just for a select few. It's not just for the most spiritual among us. Um, it is still alive. The gifts of the Holy Spirit are alive and active in the church today. And so, and they are available for you. And we, we are a people that believe in the indwelling filling of the Holy Spirit. We we walk it out. We live it out. We, we, you've heard us, I'm sure, speak in tongues in this house. I know of one family that left because their kids got weirded out about us speaking in tongues in the first year. Uh, so, so it's something that we do and practice, but I don't think we've ever talked about and taught on it. And, you know, so the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 14 gives us instruction about the um, the order of things being done decently and in order and and we're gonna we'll kind of touch on this um, and we'll get more into that even as we talk about uh, the prophetic as we move uh, into May um, but so there is uh, there is an order to things and if there is a a message in tongues giving given out. How many of you grew up in a church where maybe someone spoke out and gave a word in in tongues and in, there was an interpretation? How many of you have never seen that before in your life? Raise your hand. Well, awesome. let me demonstrate what, how it works. <laughs> no, you know. I, <laughs> I listen, it kind of it scared me uh, when I was a kid because we would be in church and there would be worship or, or they would be singing something and you'd feel the presence of the Lord. And all of a sudden, somebody, some saint, some older person in the church would just, from, from where they were sitting in the congregation, would just... Just from their gut. It was, it was this, and it'd be like, first of all, sometimes it would happen. You, you didn't see it coming. You're like, oh, my God. But, but it's like the whole church, 
I learned how to act because I saw the church just became very sober. And then we waited for someone, the pastor or someone else to interpret the message. So we, we, that was common growing up around that. We hardly see that in the church anymore. But yeah. So Paul's instruction to the church is if there is a message in tongues in a public gathering, there is to be an interpreter. Okay. But somehow, um, I think some of our spirit filled churches have taken that really to an extreme. And it's like the Holy spirit has become, um, you know, kind of the weird uncle of our church, right? And we're like, we only let him out on special occasions or back in the back room somewhere in a side room, okay? The Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity. He is God. And and so, um, you know, so so the Holy Spirit is honored here. The Holy Spirit is, um, you know, Tommy talked to our staff and some of our leadership on Tuesday, and he talked about the church often wants to put God on a leash, you know, and just take him for a walk and only go where where we want you to go. And so the, we treat the Holy Spirit like that at times. And, um, and so, but he is, he is God. He is, we're in the age of the Holy Spirit. Aren't you glad that, that the Father did not leave us alone when Jesus ascended, but he, spent, he sent the Holy Spirit. And so, um, so the Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity. The Trinity is the Godhead. We don't fully understand it, but we believe it and we confess it. Uh, God tr- is yeah. three in one, one in three. Yes. Yes. It, it's, it's a mystery, but we believe that there are three distinct persons, co-equal, co-eternal. There's this distinct order, and they each have different functions. Yes, yes. Um, Co-equal, co-eternal, different functions. Jesus, the Son of God, and the Holy Spirit are the sent ones, sent by the Father. Uh, But we see uh, the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, even in the Old Testament, okay? Because the, the word Trinity is not in Scripture. Did you just say that? You didn't say that. I thought, because sometimes I'll be thinking about what I'm going to say, and I'll say what I think, and she's already said it. <laughs> I just said that, yeah. <laughs> well, that's happened a few times, uh, but we try to just skip past it. Uh, but here's, here's one of the demonstrations of the Trinity, of the three at work. Genesis 1.26 says, let us make man in our image after our likeness. God was not talking to the angels. They did not participate in the creation. They were witnesses. We also see in Genesis chapter 11, verse 7, when they were building, the people were building the Tower of Babel. And um, they were so unified that, that God said, let us go down and confuse their language, right? Um, Isaiah 6 and 8 says, and I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Um, and you're going to read this scripture. Yes, I'm going to read. I want to say we see the picture, a beautiful picture of, of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit when Jesus is baptized, when John the Baptist um, baptizes Jesus. Jesus is in the baptism waters. We see the Holy Spirit descend like as a dove, uh, on him, and we hear the voice of the Father saying, "This is my Son, and whom I am well pleased." Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. First John, the fifth chapter, verses six and seven. This is He 
who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not only by water, but by water and blood. And it is the spirit who bears witness because the spirit is truth. For there are three that bear witness. Old King James Version says bear record. There are three that bear witness in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit. And these three are one. Yes, and the word, capital W, is referring to Jesus, the living word. He, yeah. is, he is the word of God made flesh. Um, so, um, so we're going to talk, what is a baptism of the Holy Spirit? What are tongues? And so we're th- we thought, we, as we were preparing for this, we began um, just sharing um, our stories of when we were baptized with the Holy Spirit as children. Um, Who goes first? You go first. Okay, so... Uh, I was 13 years old when I received the baptism of the Holy Spirit. We were at uh, a Church of God on, uh, I can't remember the address, in Killeen, Texas. And there was an evangelist by the name of Dennis Boggs preaching on a Wednesday night. And I went forward when there was an invitation at the end to receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And I don't remember how I ended up on the floor, but I'm laying on the floor on my back and something comes on me. If you've ever encountered the spirit of God come on you and and it's like my, my lips, I had stammering lips. I had quivering, uh, you know how you get when you're really cold. (laughs) It was like, I I was uncontrollable. I couldn't stop the, the, the stammering lips and I've tried to talk in English, and I just knew it was the presence of the Lord. And I tried to say hallelujah, and, and while my lips are shaking, and I try to say hallelujah, different syllables started forming in my mouth. He, he didn't come and make me talk. He didn't move my tongue for me, but I felt his mark upon me. I felt his touch, and I tried to talk in English, and nothing in English would come out. And I was 13 years old. I had no clue except I'd seen so much happen in church. I knew the presence of the Lord was real. I was aware of his presence and more of his presence than I'd ever experienced was sitting on top of my head. (laughs) And uh, so that was my experience. Yeah, so, um, you know, my experience receiving the baptism of the Holy Spirit, I was around, I guess, 10 or 11 years old and I was in our church. Um, It was a Sunday night service. Oh, man, remember the beautiful Sunday night services. And I had come down to the altar to receive um, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And it was actually my my aunt, uh, my Aunt Sharon, who prayed for me. And I remember her praying for me and her saying, and I just had my hands lifted and my eyes closed. And she would just say, say, I love you, Jesus. Say, I, I love you, Jesus. I love you, Jesus. And as I just began just loving the Lord and saying those words to him, I began to speak in tongues. But I... I Actually, the next thing I remember was was waking up, was kind of coming to, I also had kind of, you know, fallen, I guess I was under the power of the Holy Spirit, you know, and in those moments, we don't understand all of that, but... But I believe Holy Spirit does a deep work in our hearts in those moments. And so I just kind of uh, woke up, my, you know, kind of came to, and I had had, had this beautiful experience uh, with the Holy Spirit. And, and, um, but I remember my grandfather was a pastor. You know, you, you've shared so many times about 
the miracles of healing that your father experienced in his ministry. I remember my grandfather who pastored in the Assemblies of God and then evangelized for years. I remember him coming to our house and sitting at the kitchen table with a cup of coffee and and talking about the people who had been filled with the Holy Spirit at the service he had just ministered at. And I remember him telling my mom, oh, honey, we had 10 filled with the, with the Holy Spirit, and they were speaking in tongues. And, and so it was a real emphasis of his ministry. And, um, and so, um, so I'm grateful. I'm grateful for that legacy, but I'm passionate about this generation, you know, receiving uh, the gift of the Holy Spirit in that way. Um, we, I, I wanted to like take a, a squirrel trip and, and uh, talk about the, the falling out. It's like there really is no scripture that talks about falling out in the spirit. I mean, there are moments where people fall forward on their face, right. but not back when the spirit hits you. Although when Jesus... Uh, when the soldiers came to get Jesus and, and, and he said, I am he, they all fell back. That's, that's one encounter in the Bible when they fall. But the truth is there are a lot of things that happen in the church that may not be inscripted. That doesn't mean they're not God. I, I, it's like I've experienced it, but I also have watched people. This is when we get, when we get ready to talk about order. I've also watched people that they, they've seen people fall out. So they think that's what you're supposed to do. It's kind of a learned behavior. And I've watched them come up and get prayed for. And they're kind of like <laughs> making sure somebody's back there to catch them before they let go. So <laughs> <laughs> that might not be the Holy Spirit. That might that not might be, be the Holy Spirit. So let's talk about, uh, I want to talk yeah. about Cole and Gracie when they yeah, received the, uh, the Holy Spirit. Yeah. Um, it's just the sweetest thing. We, we talked to both of them, and they both received the Holy Spirit at different youth camps. There was a dry gulch, kids' camps. Cole, uh, uh, but there was this moment at when we were over at Covenant Church, and they were teaching about being filled with the Holy Spirit in the children and kids' ministry. And so uh, one night, I'm, having, I'm getting Cole and Gracie ready for bed, and so we're praying together, the three of us. And so Gracie starts asking questions. She's six years old, and she was like, uh, "What? How can I get? How can I receive the Holy Spirit?" I don't remember exact words she said, but she was asking me, "How do you receive the Holy Spirit?" And I said, "Well, baby, you just ask. You just ask God to fill you with His Holy Spirit, and He'll do that." She said, "Well, can I do that now?" I mean, they're laying in bed, <laughs> and and I said, "Well, sure, you can." So she prays this little prayer. And I forget what she said, but essentially she asked God to fill her with the Holy Spirit. There was this little pause, and then her little six-year-old voice goes, And there was a pause. And then Cole, who was nine, said, I'm not ready for that. But he too received a couple years later. Uh, Man, thank God for kids camps and youth camps. Um, I just want to say that. But um, so we're going to get into what is a gift of tongues. I highly encourage you to take notes today because this is some good stuff. Number one, tongues is an initial evidence of a personal Pentecost. Say, Say that, personal Pentecost. Yes. We're going to say that a few times today. Yes. I'm going to say the whole, 
sentence again. Tongues is an initial evidence of a personal Pentecost. As we see in Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 8. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each of them. Their hair caught on fire. Uh, well, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together. And they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? And yeah. So then going down to verse 12. It says, and all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others, mocking, said, they are filled with new wine. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. Joel said, and in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And so that's what, that's what this experience was. As the prophet Joel uh, prophesied uh, that God would pour out his spirit on all flesh. And if they were mocked, who are we to think we're not going to be mocked? It's the mocking, I think, that has caused so many churches of the day to send it to a back room yeah. to eliminate the mocking. Yeah. Selah. I don't okay. think, I don't think we'll be doing that around here. <laughs> um, okay. So number two, what is the gift of tongues? Number two, tongues is a sign that follows believers. Tongues is a sign that follows believers. Jesus talked about it in the Great Commission. Uh, Mark chapter 16, verses 15 through 18. And he said to them, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name, they will cast out demons. They will speak in new tongues. They will pick up serpents with their hands, and if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will lay their hands on the sick, and they will recover. So tongues is a sign that follows believers. Number three, tongues is a spiritual gift to be used with interpretation. We kind of mentioned it a few minutes ago. First Corinthians, the 12th chapter, starting with verse four. Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same spirit. 
And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom. And to another, the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healing by the one spirit to another, the working of miracles. So we have healings and we have miracles to another prophecy to another, the ability to distinguish between spirits. Another translation says the discerning of spirits to another various kinds of tongues to another, the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. So tongues is a spiritual gift to be used with interpretation in our gatherings together, okay? Number four, this is um, the last one here. Number four, and we've got a whole lot, a whole lot more to share with you. But number four, tongues is a prayer and praise language. We're talking about prayer all these last few months, and we're talking about praying in tongues today. So p- tongues is a prayer and praise language language. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 2. This is Paul's instruction. He's saying, for one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God. For no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the spirit. You know, we, we pray perfectly when we pray in the spirit, when we pray in tongues, um, we utter mysteries in the spirit. Same chapter, we're going to drop to verse 13, 14, and 15. Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret. Pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. So tongues is a prayer and praise language. Um, Paul teaches on the gifts of the Spirit, as we've already said, in 1 Corinthians 14. And even as we get into um, our series on prophecy, a prophetic people after our Easter season here, um, we'll dive more into, into this. But um, So he lines out what is appropriate for church gatherings, Paul does in his teaching. And, but, and he sums up his entire teaching. With this verse, this is the last verse of 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 39. He says, so my brothers earnestly desire to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues. I think you should say that out loud. Do not forbid speaking in tongues. The Apostle Paul wraps up his entire discussion about prophecy and tongues in the church with this scripture. Do not forbid it. Do not forbid speaking in tongues. And so I think somehow a lot of church leaders have kind of missed that, right? Um, Do not forbid speaking in tongues. Um, Did you know that the enemy, the devil, does not want you to pray in tongues? (laughs) And he'll try to convince you of a couple things. And, and I'm going to share a little bit of church history here in a second. 
But, and, and so we see this throughout church history, that, that the enemy, the, the devil will try to convince us that tongues is of the devil. That's funny. The devil tries to propagate this idea in the church that tongues are of the devil to keep you from speaking in tongues. Yes. The, the devil will also try to convince you that tongues are not for today. The gifts of the spirit are not for today. That after the apostles, they were no longer, okay, that is a lie of the enemy. Uh, the gifts of the spirit are for today. And if he can't convince you of those two things, he'll try to convince you that it's not for everyone. That maybe it's just for someone else. I don't have that gift. And so you don't contend for the gift. As we share the history here, we'll see how... Um, throughout church history, two things happened. Okay, when, when there would be an outpouring of the Spirit and the vitality of the gifts of the Spirit were in operation, when churches and denominations began to institutionalize, we see the waning of the Spirit, the, wanings, the waning of the gifts of the Spirit. But then, and then we also see, though, and William Seymour is a great example. We're going to read some of it today. Um, he... He didn't receive the gift right away, but he continued to pray and contend for it. And so, you know, um, so, if, so if you haven't received the gift of speaking in tongues, I just would encourage you to contend for it, that it is a gift that you can receive uh, from the Lord. Do you have I would say, I would say that there are people in this room right now that haven't received it. And so this, this sermon is an effort to lead you to the light of the truth of God's word and to try to eliminate any intimidation or maybe you feel like uh, there's something wrong with me because I've asked for it and I don't have it. And we want to eliminate all of those things. Those are lies. Yeah. And, and you don't have to feel guilty or bad if you haven't spoken tongues yet. Yeah. And, and so you will hear stories. And so we just say, keep pushing, keep asking for it. Keep on keeping on. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm going to dive into a little bit of church history. Okay. Does everyone have their thinking caps on? Did your teacher say that to you in school? Like put on your thinking caps. Okay. I recently took a course on the history of speaking in tongues in the church taught by Layla Nahavandi. She's actually good. So she'll be with us next week. Um, but I'm going to try and give you a brief synopsis of what we see in church history. Okay, y'all ready? Going to hop on the tour bus. We're going to go uh, explore a little bit of church history. Okay. In the early church, uh, from 100 to 600 AD, we see a lot of people speaking in tongues and the mention of tongues that are in writings recorded from that time period. But we see it beginning to wane as the church is overtaken by disingenuous conversions into Christianity under Constantine. Has anyone heard of Constantine? Um, so people join the church for all sorts of reasons, political reasons, you know, uh, all sorts of reasons they were joining the church without a true encounter with God and without a personal spiritual experience. So it's likely that the presence of the gifts of the spirit among this group would be diminished, okay? Um, now, moving into the medieval church period, which was 600 AD to 1517 AD, um, we see that saints, saints in the church and monastics, so monastics are monks and nuns, 
okay, we see that they were experiencing the gift of tongues, but the church was accusing common people who spoke in tongues as being demon-possessed. Okay, so the saints, the the nuns and the monks were experiencing the gift of tongues. That was accepted. But if the commoners spoke in tongues, it was um, that they were viewed as being demon-possessed, okay? So then we've got the Reformation period. Uh, You remember the Reformation? Luther hung the the theses, you know, the 95 theses onto the church door. And so we see a Reformation. So some, this was from 1517 AD to 1700 AD. Some reformers believed that tongues had ceased for various reasons, but that saints, monastics, and a few other groups continued to speak in tongues and began promoting that this gift was available for a broader group than just the saints or monastics. Aren't you glad that someone uh, said, no, this isn't just for the saints and the super holy people. This is a gift for everyone. Um, So post-Reformation period, 1700 to 1900 AD, John Wesley. We're getting somewhere. We're getting somewhere. We're getting closer to the modern day. John Wesley and the revivalists began to embrace spiritual gifts among common people. Revivalists began emphasizing the importance of every believer to experience a personal Pentecost. Personal Pentecost. A personal Pentecost. Wesley Wesley had encouraged a second experience subsequent to salvation that he called the second blessing. And that this second blessing was a work of the Holy Spirit to bring about sanctification. Okay? So um, that was the post-Reformation period. Now we see the, the revivalists that followed replaced this idea of sanctification with spirit baptism. They replaced it with an endowment of power from on high to be witnesses. And they began to connect the sign of Pentecost with speaking in tongues. So we see that speaking in tongues became a more common experience that many believers started to desire and to seek. Okay, you still with me? I didn't lose you? Okay. Um, So then at the turn of the 20th century, I'm actually going to, I'm going to read a little bit more here of um, this history from the turn of the 20th century. We see the first wave of Pentecostalism and the revival that brought in a real emphasis on speaking in tongues as evidence of being baptized in the Holy Spirit. Okay, um, so many of us have heard, we've been talking about revival, we've been talking about different revivals in church history, and so we're going to talk about the events that led up to and uh, the events of the Azusa Street Revival. Uh, which is where the, the, the Pentecostal movement in modern day was, was born. So um, let me go to, my, okay. So there is a minister, a young itinerant evangelist named Charles Fox Parham. He had Methodist holiness and Quaker influences. His focus was world evangelism. But in his opinion, the church of his day lacked the power necessary to fulfill the mandate of the Great Commission. This man, he lived from 1873 to 1929. So he yearned for that outpouring from heaven that would make the church a dynamic force in the earth, both in word and in deed. So in October of 1900, 
together with his Quaker wife, Sarah, and his sister-in-law, Parham opened Bethel Bible College in Topeka, Kansas. About 40 students attended, many of whom were already involved in some aspect of ministry. Prayer was the central focus of the school. And the prayer tower atop the mansion was in use 24 hours with each resident of the school participating in a prayer vigil. Okay, so we're seeing prayer here, 24 hours a day, each student taking a a turn, uh, keeping the flame burning. (laughs) Um, So by late December, the students had completed their scheduled courses. Three days prior to New Year's Eve of 1900, Parham was scheduled to preach in Kansas City, but before leaving, he exhorted the students to study the subject of the baptism of the Holy Spirit, especially in the book of Acts. He urged them to search for objective biblical evidence whereby a person could know for certain that he or she had truly received the baptism of the Holy Spirit. When he returned on New Year's Eve, Parham called the students together and inquired concerning their study, okay? And this is what Parham wrote. He, he writes, to my astonishment, they all had the same story, that while there were different things occurring when the Pentecostal blessing fell, that the indisputable, indisputable proof on each occasion was that they spoke with other tongues, the outpouring in the watch night service, okay, do y'all, anybody grow up in a church where your New Year's Eve was a watch night service and y'all prayed all night long? <laughs> so he's saying the outpouring in the watch night service from night that, turning from 1900 to 1901, later that evening, the Holy Spirit manifested himself with unusual intensity. At about 11 p.m., as the 20th century was about to dawn, Agnes Osman, a holiness preacher who was a student at the school, asked Parham to pray for her that she might receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit in the manner they had observed in their study. Hesitant at first, Parham finally consented. Humbly in the name of Jesus, he says, I laid my hand upon her and prayed. I had scarcely repeated three dozen sentences when a glory fell upon her. A halo seemed to surround her head and face, and she began speaking in the Chinese language and was unable to speak in English for three days. This event fanned the flames of spiritual desire in Parham and the others at Bethel. Suspending normal activities, they set aside an upper room where they waited on the Lord for their personal Pentecost. In 1905, Parham went to Houston, Texas, where he conducted a successful revival campaign in Bryan Hall. The local newspaper carried reports of the many healings and other charismatic phenomena occurring in the meetings. Although a number of important early Pentecostal leaders emerged from this campaign, perhaps the most famous was William J. Seymour, the pastor of a local holiness congregation. He was especially intrigued by the doctrine of spirit baptism evidenced by speaking in tongues that he heard Parham was teaching. 
When Seymour learned that Parham would be remaining in Houston, opening a short-term Bible school, he applied for enrollment. Now, William J. Seymour, I think probably most of you know, was an African-American man. Okay, so because of Southern segregation laws and customs, his application posed a problem. But they worked out a way for Seymour to sit in an adjoining room where through an open door, he was able to listen to the lectures. Although Seymour did not receive the experience of the baptism while at the school, he accepted it as biblically, biblically correct. And Seymour was consumed with a passionate desire for God. Wow. Seymour then moved to Los Angeles to pastor a church there. Seymour preached his first sermon from Acts 2 and 4 and broached the subject of tongues as the biblical evidence of spirit baptism. When he returned for the evening service, he found the door padlocked. Church officials had found his message of spirit baptism evidenced by speaking in tongues unacceptable. The Asburys, who were a family in the church, they lived on Bonnie Bray Street. They invited Seymour to their home where he gave himself to prayer almost constantly. While eating supper one evening during this time, Richard Asbury suddenly fell from his chair onto the floor and began speaking in tongues. Soon others, including Seymour, he finally received it, were also experiencing the baptism of the Holy Spirit and speaking in tongues. As word spread that charismatic gifts were occurring on Bonnie Bray Street, large crowds converged on the Asbury residence. I guess the church doesn't really need a building, huh? <laughs> Forced to seek larger facilities... They found an empty building. They found a building <laughs> at 312 Azusa Street in downtown Los Angeles. Formerly, it had been a Methodist Episcopal church, but more recently, it had been used as a stable and a warehouse. They removed the debris and installed rough plank benches and a makeshift pulpit made from wooden shoeboxes. And on April 14th, 1906, they held their first service. And revival fires blazed even more brightly. Prayer seems to have been the foremost activity at the Azusa mission. One participant said, the whole place was steeped in prayer. As services continued at the Azusa Street Mission, word spread by word of mouth and newspapers that God was doing a unique work there. The Los Angeles Times gave local coverage, which although was not always positive, caught the attention of the local populace. News of the revival raised interest everywhere it reached, and soon the faithful and the curious were journeying from far and near to experience the event. Thousands who were hungry for a new outpouring of God's spirit, many coming from different church backgrounds, were baptized in the spirit and spoke in tongues. One person whose life was transformed at the Azusa mission was Ernest S. Williams. He later served as general superintendent of the Assemblies of God 
He first visited the revival in 1907 and was astounded by what he encountered. This is what he said. I wish I could describe what I saw. Prayer and worship were everywhere. The altar area was filled with seekers. Some were kneeling Others were prone on the floor. Some were speaking in tongues. Everyone was doing something. All were seemingly lost in God. I simply stood and looked for I had never seen anything like it. Shortly thereafter, Williams received his personal Pentecost and spoke in tongues. So this revival movement the Azusa Street Revival that emphasized speaking in tongues swept across the world from Europe, India, Africa, South America, and many other diverse regions came news from believers who were being baptized in the Holy Spirit and speaking in tongues for the first time. This first wave of Pentecostalism was followed by a second and third wave of revival, uh, which brought a renewal of the spiritual gifts and speaking in tongues to all kinds of churches, all denominations, to the point where today about one quarter of all Christians in the world, one quarter, identify as Pentecostals or charismatic. So what I love is as these people were being filled with the Holy Spirit, they were encouraged, don't leave your denomination, stay in your church so that your church will, will experience this renewal, will, will experience the power of the Holy Spirit. I want to pause. I just want to pause and allow you to dwell on what she has just shared and let hunger let hunger rise in your heart right now I just I feel like we have to just stop and say God this is our desire we have talked about we have pursued we have uh, communicated we have stressed our great yearning for an outpouring of your glory. But this account of, of the outpouring at the, at the turn of the 20th century, God, this creates such desire, a flame in my heart that helps bring into focus the kind of revival that we're asking for. We're a room, we're a room full of spirit-filled people, but God, I ask that the fire would explode in us. That the fire of the Holy Spirit would explode in us. That there would be such an outbreak of the Holy Spirit, a move of God, the third person of the Trinity. We welcome the move of the Spirit of God in this house. We say we must have it. We say we don't want to go another day without it. We call for it. We cry for it. Yes, yes, yes. 
Let it grip our hearts, God. Let it grip our hearts. Thank you for joining us today at the Dwell Church Podcast. For more information about Dwell Church, visit us at dwell.church.